This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. At the turn of the 21st century, there was a great deal of discussion about who were the most important figures in the preceding millennium. In 2017, we'll celebrate the life and significance of one of those epochal figures, Martin Luther. In preparation for that celebration and looking forward to our 2017 faculty conference, Is the Reformation Over? Our theme for Season 8 of Office Hours is Reformation 500. We're thinking about what the Reformation was, why it happened, and what it means for us. Joining us to help us think about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is Dr. W. Robert Godfrey, President and Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California. Bob is an expert in Reformation history. He recently produced a six-part DVD series of lectures on church history for Ligonier Ministries. He's author of John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor, and Reformation Sketches. These and other faculty titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part two of our two-part interview with Dr. Godfrey. Luther will come to say later that we have to learn to say, for me. We have to say that over and over again because I think we all need that, but particularly in that setting. Everyone had been taught for you know a thousand years that it was really about what was happening in you. And we had to learn to think again about what was done for us. Not to say that he was disinterested in what happens in us. No, not at all. But he wanted to flip that order, didn't he? Right. Luther and Calvin, every bit as much, said that unless you have that confidence that Christ has done all for your justification, you're never going to really make any progress in sanctification. And the whole process, really, for both of them is a gracious thing. And it's not like we begin with grace for justification, and then it's all about law for sanctification either. Right. The law is useful for sanctification, but the law is useful for justification. The law is useful for justification to teach us that we're hopeless sinners in ourselves. And the law is useful for sanctification to show us the goals to which we should be aspiring. And Luther and Calvin, I think, really agreed about that, don't Absolutely. You? They don't use exactly the same language. Uh, Luther, you always have to remember, is hyperbolic. Whatever he's talking about at the moment, he expresses in a very vigorous and sometimes exaggerated form. But there is no indifference to holiness in Luther. Luther is passionate about holiness. It is remarkable that people think that. It is. I always wonder if people have ever actually read Luther when they say that he didn't believe in the third use of the law, that the law norms the life of the Christian. Yeah. I, I mean, I think he's crystal clear about that. Again, he speaks about that sometimes in a different way from the way in which reform do. But it comes down to the same point. The law holds up before us a mirror in which we can see not only our sinfulness, but also the way in which we ought to go. I remember reading Luther, and he says, uh, well, some people say if you have faith in Christ, you can be an adulterer. And he says, that's just ridiculous. If you're an adulterer, you're not a Christian. Yeah. I mean, he just says that as flat out as can be in a remarkable way. When you see him expositing the fourth, what we would call the fourth commandment in the large catechism from 1529, you'd think, if you didn't know it was Luther, that it was probably some Reformed guy banging on about the Sabbath. Yeah. And you think he's going to say, and of course, nobody can keep this, and this is meant to drive you to Christ. And he never says that. He just says, this is how you're supposed to regard the Lord's Day. Right. So I really wish people would get back to Luther and understand that 
there really is no antinomianism in confessional Protestant theology in the 16th century. That is so true that Luther even wrote a treatise against the antinomians. I mean, how much more clear can you be than that? <laughs> You'd think. <laughs> but the problem is, of course, you know, the collected works of Luther run to over 100 volumes. So it's not surprising that lots of people who spend a lot of time with Luther still haven't mastered everything Luther has to say. At least look at the table of contents. Yes, always a good idea. A couple of other things. He also began to make a distinction and sort of reorganize an ancient distinction that the church had made between law and gospel. Before the Reformation, when you heard somebody say law and gospel, what did they mean by that? Well, very often people had come to the conclusion that Moses gave the law as Ten Commandments and Christ gave the law as the Sermon on the Mount, which meant Christ was a more demanding lawgiver than Moses. And if there was any good news in the gospel is that Jesus had given you more resources to try to fulfill the law. And so when Luther through the course of these lectures, again, in the Psalms and Romans and Hebrews and Galatians and the Psalms again, he begins to see that for Paul, particularly, law and gospel are not old law and new law. There's something else. Right. And what Luther came to see, as the Reformed did as well, that the gospel is to be found in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, and that what the gospel is, is what you can't do for yourself, God in Christ is doing for you. Luther would ultimately say, no book of the Bible speaks more clearly about the death and resurrection of Christ than the Psalms. So there's this sense that alongside the news of condemnation in the Bible is also the news of redemption in the sacrificial substitute that God would provide for his people. And that's a very significant breakthrough in the way that Protestants are going to read the Bible. And again, Calvin picks this up and Bootser picks this up, and it becomes a basic, even though today to say, I believe in a distinction between law and gospel is in some places a controversial thing to say. Right. In the 16th century, it was controversial, but the controversy was between Protestants who believed it and Romanists who thought it was a terrible idea. Right. What happens, and this is particularly important for American evangelicalism, is what happens in the English-speaking world in the 17th century is a lot of people look around and say, okay, we've got the law and the gospel right theoretically, but we have lots of people who seem not to have sound religion. The great problem we have now is formalism. How can we deal with the problem of formalism? How can we ensure that there's really heart religion? Well, that's a very legitimate problem and a very legitimate concern. The danger is that there developed Protestants who thought the way to promote heart religion was to keep telling them all the rules they had to keep. And then you run the very real risk of finding yourself right back in the Middle Ages with the gospel being a new law. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There's one other sola that we haven't touched on, and it's, I think, somewhat hard to nail down, except when you get to Worms, 1521. So why don't we go there? Why was Luther in Worms in 1521? What's the significance of that, and what happened there? Well, um, Luther had become a famous person. He started to become famous all the way back in 1517 because people unbeknownst to him took his 95 theses written in Latin for academic debate, and they translated them into German, and they published them. Now, if your pastor wrote 95 theses in Latin and post them on your church door, it would probably have 
very little impact. And that would be largely <laughs> true in Luther's day. But because they were translated into German and published, Luther suddenly became famous and people began to support him for his critique of corruptions in the church. People began to critique him as if he were a rebel. And that situation grew and grew, coming to a head, first of all, at Leipzig in the debate with Eck. And I think that's part of where you're going here, is that Luther, challenged by Eck, who knew more church history than Luther did, illustrating for all students that they need to study more church history than they do, Luther, backed into a corner by a superior historian, began to appeal more and more to Scripture and began to realize, ultimately, it's Scripture that tells us the truth, not church history tells us the truth. Now, I'm undermining my own case, but church history is important, but it's not ultimate. And It's not normative. It's not normative. Just because somebody did something in the past doesn't mean that we're bound to it. Right. So Luther really moves towards sola scriptura, Scripture alone as the authority in the life of the church. And that's part of what begins to lead more and more people to think he really is a heretic and really is a rebel. Because in the past, heretics had appealed to Scripture. Right. right? Someone somewhere said, all heretics quote Scripture. Right. And that's true, of course. I mean, it's true today, isn't it? There are all sorts of heretical movements that claim to be more biblical than thou. And particularly in Leipzig, the heritage of Huss was a very near neighbor and a great concern. So as Luther becomes more public, becomes more clear about the gospel, becomes more critical of the Pope and tradition in the life of the church. He is condemned by the church and is protected by the elector of Saxony, Frederick, um, and appeals then to the emperor. The elector appeals to the emperor to give judgment. And that's why Luther comes to Worms in um, 1521 to make his case before the emperor. And day one, he enters the Great Hall, and they begin questioning him, and how does he respond? Well, the emperor, who is an honorable young man, having been raised in the Netherlands and therefore noble and gentlemanly, <laughs> um, the emperor had been very carefully prepared and told by his advisors, this guy's very persuasive, don't let him talk. And so the whole procedure was, uh, here are your writings, will you condemn the errors in them? And Luther tries to temporize and say, well, what errors? And they're ready for him and say to him, well, you're a professor of theology, you know what your errors are, will you renounce them? Then Luther makes his second most famous speech, where he says, can I have 24 hours to think it over? <laughs> That's significant because, you know, it's easy to turn Luther into kind of a superhero figure. And the truth is, he's a human being, a flesh and blood human being, who is potentially, even though he has safe conduct, potentially faced with his martyrdom, depending on how all this goes. And he is, as a good medieval communalist, not an American individualist, he really is haunted by the question, am I alone wise? That's being pressed on him by the church. And part of what the church is saying and part of what he feels very seriously is the church is saying to him, you know, Luther, it's bad enough that you're taking your own soul to hell. But do you realize you're leading the souls of all your followers to hell? Are you so arrogant and sure that you alone are wise that you're willing to put all these other souls at risk? And so when he asks for 24 hours, it's not just an act of cowardice. It's an act of deep reflection on this question. Am I so sure that I can run the risk not only of my own soul but the souls of others? He really was a lonely figure. He was. It's hard for us to appreciate what it meant for him to stand in front of all of the authorities 
You had ecclesiastical authorities representing God, and you had the single greatest civil authority in the world, you know, again, representing the other sword. And Luther is going to stand up in front of them and say, you're all wrong, and I'm the only one who's got it right. Now, right. Americans say, that's right. <laughs> right. But as you say, not so easy to do when yeah. you're actually doing it and when no one has ever done it before quite that way. Right. And so, you know, what he really comes to through that time of prayer and reflection and meditation is, I am bound by the Word of God. This isn't anything about Luther. This isn't what Luther believes. This isn't a claim that Luther is wise. He said, I can't read the Scriptures any other way than how I've come to read them. And so the Word drives me to this, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. And there we have an unequivocal affirmation that Scripture norms all other authorities. Right. The church isn't the norm of Scripture. The Scripture is in charge of the church. And tradition cannot stand over the Scriptures. And, you know, one of the most important struggles of the Reformation is, is the Scripture clear? And, you know, it's still a struggle today because a lot of people say, well, if the Scripture were so clear, why would there be all these denominations? Well, that's a fair question. But if you stand back and look at it, denominations that seriously believe the Bible really are united about most things. It's not just a theoretical truth, it's a practical truth that the scriptures are pretty clear. But Luther particularly wanted to affirm, Calvin wants to affirm, the theoretical point that if scripture is revelation, either God can successfully reveal himself or he can't. And to say that God can't successfully reveal himself in words but needs an institution to interpret those words is really problematic, I think. And to augment those words, which yes. is ultimately what Rome says that she's doing. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church, and it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. All right, so we have a picture of how Luther became a Protestant. Let's go back and clean up some details and fill in some blanks. 1517, he writes against indulgences, but we haven't said what indulgences were and why he was offended by them or by their abuse. Right. He was only offended by their abuse at that time. Indulgences were another manifestation of the grace of the church that when the sacrament of penance was used in order to receive absolution from God through the priest, you had to have sincere 
sorrow over sin in your heart. You had to orally confess your sins to a priest, and then you had to fulfill the satisfactions that the priest imposed. And those satisfactions were usually the giving of money or the saying of prayers. Some people were not able to give the money or say the prayers because they were ill or were aged or whatever. And so along the way, the church had come up with this notion, if you can't fulfill the satisfaction, you can get an indulgence so that you don't need to fulfill the satisfaction from the church. Again, from the church's point of view, this is another act of mercy, of grace, of encouragement, of help. And fundraising. And that's the problem over time. There's money in them, thar sins. And, uh, uh, and so over time, increasingly, the indulgences were used to raise money for the church. And that's what Luther was particularly objecting to, is an abusive corruption of what was meant to be a spiritually encouraging system to raise money for the church. And there really was a guy named Tetzel who was going around saying something like, when the coin in the coffer clinks, the soul from purgatory springs. So if you really love your grandfather who's right. you know, suffering temporal pains in between this life and the next, in this sort of in-between state, you can release him by a donation. Right. It was that crass. Right. And that donation ultimately would go to help the archbishop who had to pay his debts having bought his office, and he bought his office to help build St. Peter's in Rome. So every time you see St. Peter's in Rome and some splendid procession in front of it, you should remember that it was significantly built by the very indulgences that Luther objected to. And so Tetzel is like a late-night you know, TV preacher huckstering people for their money. Yeah, it was a prosperity gospel. The prosperity was just getting out of purgatory early. And raising a lot of money. A lot of money. And it still goes on, doesn't it? People think that it all ended in the 16th century, that Luther objected and Rome was shamed and it all stopped. But Rome is still selling indulgences. It is. For absolutely. the very same reasons. Yeah. And uh, this is, I think, a holy year. If you go through certain doors, you get an indulgence, which is certain amount of time out of purgatory. And you can still write a check and get I an indulgence. In fairness, most churches are willing to accept checks. Yes, but, but not to grant it. Now, you might grant an indulgence for the building project, but— <laughs> I claim no right to grant indulgence. Okay, all right. I'm just checking to see how, how far you were willing to I'm go. I'm willing to go pretty far, but not that far. <laughs> all right. One of the fascinating questions about Luther is why he survived. How could one, you know, increasingly corpulent monk have survived and challenged all of the existing order that then was? Well, it was a close call at times when he walked out of the uh, hall where he made his, what's usually called, here I stand speech. The Spanish bodyguards of the emperor muttered to him, to the flames, to the flames. And the elector Frederick kidnapped him, really, after he left the city to hide him so the emperor couldn't find him because Luther was declared an outlaw after the uh, Diet of Worms. And anyone who helped him was also subject to punishment. So partly it was he was hidden. But then in many ways, the biggest factor was that the emperor was distracted and uh, distracted in part because of the constant struggles the Habsburgs had with the kings of France, but probably even more importantly, the struggles the emperor faced on his eastern border with the advance of Islam. And so uh, what Charles needed was money and troops to fight, and he didn't really have the time or energy to alienate people like the elector of Saxony, so let the thing slide for a time. 
So politics is actually fairly significant in the advance of the Reformation, that in the providence of God, things were such that this relatively obscure monk could do and say what he said and get away with it, that the papacy was actually, in reality, much weaker than people knew. Charles V, in some ways, was weaker than people knew. And so we were able to have a Reformation without Luther being martyred about three days into it. I mean, there's one providence after another in the coming of the Reformation. Another critical providence was the invention of printing, so that the views of Luther and those who supported him could be disseminated widely, but they never could have been a hundred years before in the same sort of way. So somebody spreading Luther's objections to the abuse of indulgences is something like taking something your pastor wrote and putting it up on Facebook. Right. And it gets, you know, 500,000 likes. As opposed to saying the only way your pastor's views get out there is if somebody repeats them orally. Well, that's going to spread far less far than if your pastor internets them, whatever that's called. <laughs> so we're living through an analogous sort of social technological communication. Revolution. The difference is that printing allowed most of the time fairly well-informed people to speak. The internet allows idiots to speak as well as the well-informed. <laughs> yeah, with no reflection on this podcast. None whatsoever. How did Rome react to Luther? Did Rome just roll over and say, well, okay, you're entitled to your opinion? Uh, no. Relatively few people in the 16th century thought you were entitled to your opinion. But Rome, first of all, excommunicated him, and then they ordered that he be sent to Rome for trial, which Frederick prevented, and then over time would do everything possible to oppose Luther, to oppose the spread of the Reformation. And that, of course, included the use of the Inquisition in various places to uh, try to stop the spread of ideas. So Rome by no means ruled over and played dead. And indeed, under the stimulus of the Reformation, Rome by the 1540s and beyond would begin to rehabilitate itself and discipline itself and strengthen itself so that, in fact, it was able to survive and in many ways flourish in relation to the Reformation. A couple of issues are likely to come up during the Reformation year, right, in 2017. One of those will be Luther and the Jews. That right. Luther wrote some very strong words at different times in his life about the Jews and his reflecting his frustration that they you know, were not being converted as quickly as he thought they should be. And those words are often connected to much later developments, and Luther is blamed for social phenomena like the Holocaust. How do you explain the relationship between Luther and the Jews? How should we think about that? Well, Luther used in his lifetime against various enemies, very vehement and one might say violent, terrible language. And no one who admires Luther has to admire everything about Luther. Luther was a sinner saved by grace. So the first thing that needs to be said is that we do not need to embrace and in fact ought to repudiate a number of the violent and vicious things that Luther said. To try to understand what motivated Luther to say these things, we have to realize that in the first place, Luther wanted all Jews to become Christians. That is not anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism hates Jews for ethnic blood issues. For the Nazis, for example, Jews could never stop being Jews. It didn't matter what religion they held to. They had tainted blood, according to the Nazis. That's not what Luther believed. Luther wanted all Jews to convert and become members of his church. 
He really believed, somewhat naively, I think, that Jews had not converted because they hadn't heard the gospel clearly, and that now that they would hear the gospel clearly, they would convert. When they didn't, he was profoundly frustrated and disappointed. And then he began to look around and say, who are the enemies of Christ? Well, the enemies of Christ are those who reject the gospel in the name of the law. So when you look at the really violent writings of Luther, he attacks the Pope because the Pope puts law above gospel in Luther's mind. He attacks Anabaptists who waged war in the Peasants' War because they put law above gospel. At times he attacks lawyers because he's convinced lawyers can't help but put law above (laughs) above gospel. And he attacks the Jews for the same reason. They've put law above gospel. So I don't think Luther's singling out the Jews, but he is saying there are various instruments of the devil in this world, Pope, Anabaptists, lawyers, Jews, Turks, Turks, who are being used by the devil to oppose Christ. I understand where he's coming from. I repudiate the language, but I don't think it's fair to see Luther as anti-Semitic in a modern sense. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. This is an anachronism, right? We've taken a 20th century issue, question, problem, and categories and read it back into the 16th century and asked a 16th century character to have the same kinds of sensitivities that we have after World War II. Right. And what is terrible, of course, is the Nazis could lift a sentence out of Luther and use it to their purposes. But it's really not what Luther intended, and it's not understanding Luther in his context. Nevertheless, we want to say we don't agree with the way in which Luther put himself. We do agree with Luther that we'd love all Jews to become Christians. We call that evangelism. We call that evangelism. Or, or mission, right. 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 And, uh, but we don't believe in any kind of compulsion to that end. And uh, Luther, at least at his better moments, didn't believe in compulsion either for that. This raises the issue of Luther's expectations. There is a point early on in the Reformation where it seems like the kingdom of God is going to come shortly, and he has a very highly realized eschatology at a moment. And when things don't quite go the way he hopes, there's a, I don't know if the disenchantment is quite the right word, but disappointment. I think you're right. There's an eschatological dimension to it. Most late medieval Christians believed the world was coming to an end soon. And uh, when the Jews seemed hardened in unbelief, that became a sign, in a sense, to Luther that the world was coming to an end soon. Second thing, Luther and canon. He didn't believe in the epistle of James, wanted to get rid of it. Is that about the right story? Well, I think that's a little overstated. I think uh, uh, I think you can actually find him quoting James in his writings from time to time. What he wanted to say, I think that was important, was that it is not the church that determines the canon. Therefore, he was willing to maintain a little more openness towards the canon, certainly than Roman Catholics would or that Reformed people would. And uh, that's why he could say of James, well, I don't see the gospel really so clearly in James. Uh, I'm not so sure it belongs in the canon. But he said that not as a purely individual act, but because he looked back at the history of the church and said, in the early centuries of the church, there were other people who weren't so sure about James. So we ought to be not imposing that on people absolutely either. We can distinguish, too, between the way he spoke about James early on in his ministry and later in his ministry. Right. So by the end of his career, he's actually fairly appreciative of James because he's come to, a, I think, a better understanding of James too, which was the real great problem that he originally had. Right. 
Right. All right. Quickly, just a couple of other things to hit as we begin to wrap this up. What is the most effective way, you think, to read Luther? So the listener is hearing these two episodes and is saying, well, this is interesting. I want to learn more. Where would you direct him and what should he read? I like to read Luther's sermons and I like to read Luther's commentaries. Some of his theological treatises may require a little more context, a little more understanding of the world in which he was writing. Luther, with my apologies to my Lutheran friends, is not the greatest exegete. Calvin is a better exegete, I think, than Luther was. You're talking about somebody with their Bible open and explaining things in the right. kind of in the way that we're used to seeing it done. Luther doesn't exactly do that. Right. But when you're reading Luther's commentaries, you can't read, I don't think, a page of Luther without jumping out at you a sentence of real spiritual insight that's worth pausing and meditating on. And that's what's great about Luther. He's not always systematic. Uh, and I tried to talk about that earlier when I said he exaggerates to make a point. But he has wonderful spiritual insight. In some ways, he's a preacher, isn't he? He is. That's a good way of putting it. A preacher who bangs the point home, not a subtle <laughs> preacher. He's a colorful, engaging preacher. So, you know, there is a, I think, six-volume English translation of his sermons published by Baker, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's out there. What about reading about Luther? Are there texts about Luther that you really like that you recommend? Well, I still recommend what's now going to be a very old book, Roland Bainton's Here I Stand, published in 1950. But very readable, but very reliable, very thoughtful, very insightful. It's not a popular biography, but it's written in a very lively and engaging and accessible style. So I still like that. Heiko Obermann's Luther, A Man Between God and the Devil, has a lot of good things about it to kind of supplement Bainton. I don't like his chapter on Luther and the Bible. I think he gets that wrong. It is quite wrong. It's yeah, quite Bardian. It's, it's disappointingly wrong for someone who is so intimately aware of 16th century. But anyway, only you and I write perfect books. So, uh... <laughs> and those are available in the bookstore at Westminster <laughs> Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu slash bookstore. Actually, Ligonier just produced a new book called The Legacy of Martin Luther, edited by R.C. Sproul and Stephen Nichols. And there are some really nice essays in that book. And you have a little bit about Luther in Reformation Sketches? I do. Which is available? Yeah. Okay. um, Just two more things. First, should Reformed people read Luther? I have the strong impression that Reformed people don't often read him and therefore really don't know him very well. Right. I would say one of my missions as I'm now old and increasingly decrepit is to encourage young readers to read classic works. We have, and it's a good thing, lots of books being produced all the time. And some of them are very valuable. But I think there's a risk that there's so much being published now that people neglect to read really classic works. And I do think people should read Luther. I think he's spiritually profitable. He's theologically insightful. And you are able to engage with one of the great minds of Christian history. Let's face it, except for you and me, we don't engage with a lot of great (laughs) minds in our day. And to see a great mind at work and a great communicator at work is a privilege, I think, not to be missed. You know, again, to go back to the sermons, just to read those sermons is really edifying. You, it is. You see a pastoral, gentle shepherd, you know, whereas in the treatises— Occasionally you know, with a club in his hand. Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah, yes. He could get worked up. Yes. But, you know, where you read maybe Bondage of the Will or something else or the Reformation treatises, you know, those have one rhetorical effect. But when he knows he's talking to, you know, Christ's people, you really see the a pastoral needy people, side. yeah. 
Yeah, he he's, senses the need of the people to hear from God. In our age, we might think that he's a little mean. We're a very sensitive people now. And so the reader needs to be aware of the difference between where we are now and where he was then. But the right. sermons maybe help bridge that. Finally then, how has Luther changed your life? Have you invited Luther into your heart? And if and when you did, what happened? Well, I think the great thing that has come to me personally from Luther is his emphasis on knowing. And Calvin makes this point, of course, as well. But Luther, with a particular forcefulness, that we know the mind of God by looking at the face of Christ, that there is no hidden God behind Christ that puts us at risk, and that Luther is so passionate that Christ is for us, Christ is with us, and Christ is smiling upon his people. And I think there's something wonderfully encouraging about that. And there is a danger sometimes to uh, Reformed theology beginning to say a little bit, well, yeah, Christ is the gospel, but is he really for you? You know, and Luther, I think, really helps there to say, yes, he's for you. And uh, this does not make me any less committed to Calvinistic particularism, but the reality of the presence of a gracious Christ is a great blessing from Luther. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.